0: I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog.
1: What is good, guys? So this is like the official Freeman podcast of the off season because we are officially, like J. Cole, in the off season. <laughs> Big fan of that album. Loving it at the moment. I'm joined by Mr. Will Weir. And I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manakis. And before they say hello, if they're listening to this album, my favorite song at the moment is "Applying
0: Pressure." What's your favorite song off that album at the moment? That that's that's a great question. Um, I don't have. I haven't listened to the album on that level yet, but I have listened twice through, and I like that J Cole pretty much. He, he he's starting to like uh, utilize a little bit more of that auto tune in his albums now, um, kind of keeping up with the times. And then you know flows crazy as always. Um, I, in terms of favorite albums of J Cole, I don't think it's quite Forest Hills Drive. Um, I also am a big fan of For Your Eyes Only. I know that album was kind of slept on a little bit, but I'm I'm definitely digging it. I, I can get I can get back to you on what's my favorite song on on that album uh, next pod for sure though. J Cole's my yeah. guy though.
2: I know I was waiting for you to go off on this, Greg. I know that's I know you're a huge J Cole fan. I feel like. J. J. Cole is always a little polarizing. I feel like there's like one side that's like, yo, J. Cole is like the hottest dude out there. Then there's the other side that thinks J. Cole is like corny and just does not get down with J. Cole. I actually feel like I kind of fall in the middle. I like J. Cole. This album, I've listened to it kind of, when it comes to like a new album like that of an artist that I do like, I usually kind of just kind of put it on while I'm doing other stuff and like see what kind of grabs my attention. like makes me kind of stop what I'm doing. Didn't, I only listen to this one, this album once through so far and nothing really grabbed me. So I'm still, I have a, I have it on my list to go back and, and listen to it again, and see what really what what really grabs my attention. So I, I got to do some more work on this Adam before I can give a give a real
0: answer to well, it. Well, I I think one of the things with Jay Cole is the one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of him is you have to see this dude live. Like his performances live are crazy. He came to I'm I'm a Boston College guy, so he came to Boston College for my senior concert. I think it was my senior year, um, and it was kind of I graduated 2007, so it was right before he like really really blew up and i remember watching this dude i didn't really know too much about him and he just hooked me i didn't know any of the lyrics to his songs but his performance on stage i was just like that dude has the it factor i don't know what it is but he's got it and i'm gonna i'm just gonna become a fan of him and just start listening to all this stuff and uh, i mean i'm glad i did because you know it's 2021 14 years later and i'm still a big j cole fan
1: do you want to know what's crazy First of all, I also re- recommend Pride is the Devil off that album. That's probably my joint favorite.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And we'll take notes right
1: now. For the listeners, we'll get into basketball, we promise. But as you say, like seeing people live, the one guy that I saw live that was at a festival where he had no place being, it was at like uh, the UK's and probably one of the biggest metal festivals in the world, Download. Um, I remember one of the early acts was Machine Gun Kelly before Machine Gun Kelly was big. <laughs> Okay. And I remember thinking to myself, this dude, I'm sure this dude done a song with Little Mix. What's he doing at a metal gig?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I, I don't get this, you know, system of a down, a headlining tonight. Why is this guy one of the earlier acts? And uh, when I saw him live, I was like, this, this guy's legit as an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen him four times now. And I've listened, I know literally the words to 85% of his songs. So yeah. seeing someone live, I think, can really get that attachment level a lot more than just listening to
2: them through Spotify. Yeah, I don't know a ton of MGK, but, like, I know he's got this, like, super energy, too. I remember the first song I ever heard of his was with uh, Waka Flocka. I think it's called Wild Boy. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Adam. I feel like you would, you would know for sure. But the energy on that song, that's one of those songs that you listen to, and it might be able to get you a little bit hype while you're listening on, like, Spotify or Apple, whatever. But, like, that's one of those ones where it's like, oh, if I heard this live, this would get me, like... This is like the KG, like, listen to it before a game amp, like, type level.
0: No, Well, Adam, the question is, did MGK win the battle with Eminem? Ooh, that's a good one.
1: I think MGK created the better tune. I think he created the better song overall. I think Eminem's rhyming scheme is just so complex that he was firing shots that were going over a lot of people's heads to begin with, and, like, Mm -hmm. you have to listen to it five or six times. Uh, But I think... As an actual piece of art, something that you can consume and enjoy as a as a consumer, I think MGK won there. In terms of disses, I think M- uh, Eminem probably just about won it due to the uh, the complex of, the complex the more complex
0: rhyme scheme. Oh yeah, that's that's M's wheelhouse. I, I, I was I was impressed that MGK came at Eminem, but I mean once you once you hear I, th- I think it's called Killshot. Shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Once you hear Kill Shot, it's just like sorry, bro, you lost that one. Well, that's the thing is
2: like M's like the rapper that like all other of the top tier rappers will be like, you know, have started beef with other people like, nah, I'm not messing with Eminem because they just know Eminem when it comes to like that complexity as Adam was describing. Like, it's just a different ball game, And he's also a little bit insane. A little touch.
0: Yeah. And then <laughs> M's like, obviously M's songs have fallen off over the years. We can get to basketball here in a second. Uh, yeah. Just my, my, my last thought on Eminem though, is that, I forget who said it. I think it was Ice-T. Um, he said m is the best rhymer of words like if you want to get into a like a word rhyming contest you will not beat eminem but if you just want to like stack up hits side by side like there are a lot of rappers out there a lot of artists out there that have a better catalog of eminem especially post like 2004 um but yeah that's my that's my final thought on eminem
1: we can I mean, talk i mean i will Wala. say this i will <laughs> say this you could say his music has fell off recently but um Tone, tone Death and his new one with Jack Harlow and Cordae, Killer, um, those two are bangers and they are on repeat at the moment on my playlist. So I will say that a lot of his music has fallen off. But if you want some new Eminem music that's just straight up banging, then Tone Death and um, Killer with Cordae and Jack Harlow are legit bangers that you can pump in your car
2: yeah i gotta say real quick hold on before we move on i just gotta (laughs) say i really enjoy the way adam calls these songs bangers it's i don't know i don't know what it is but it's making me feel good it makes me feel a little hype right now hearing them called bangers by adam don't you guys call music bangers i i I don't think it's a i mean it's a term i've heard before i I don't really use it but that's the way that you say it i don't know if it's with the accent or something but like i don't know i'm really digging it man
1: yeah, if a tune's banging, then I get really hyped for it, dude. That's just a bit, always been the way for, like, um over a decade that I'm like, does this tune bang? Because there's a difference between, like, enjoying a song and the song banging. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, here-
0: bang. <laughs> I think I figured it out, Will. It's it's the fact that he actually pronounces that first G. We call it a banger, right? He calls it a banger. You can, like, hear that G <laughs> in there. I think that's what it is. That's get why you like it. pronunciation
2: in there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Are the English guy
1: speaking proper English. What can we say, man? I mean, <laughs> what's going on? Um, yes, yeah, so basketball, everybody. You've had seven minutes of just a hip hop lesson. You are welcome, by the way. Uh, let us know if you agree or disagree with any of those music discussions. I don't know how we got there, but I'm glad we did. Look, man, there's a lot to unwrap to, uh, today. I think that there's going to be multiple episodes this week where all we're doing is making sense of what's coming out in the media, what's happened in the last few days. And most of it is going to be based around the fact that the Boston Celtics no longer have a head coach, which now means there will be a new head coach, evidently. Now, first of all, I think that we need to just agree or disagree that I think Brad Stevens' tenure here has probably been cut... No, I wouldn't say it's been cut short, but I don't know whether or not I'd classify it as a resounding success. So by that measure, I think that if you're talking about a coach that came in, kept the team more than competitive, like highly competitive during a rebuilding phase and bought the city of Boston memories that are, are still being spoke about now during the Isaiah Thomas years, during the uh, when Kyrie Irving was injured and we had that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum run, the run in the bubble. We've got so many experiences that come as part and parcel of the way he coached his team that I can't call his, his time here a failure, but I just don't think I can call it a resounding success.
0: Will and I got into this, man, we've been going kind of back and forth about whether or not uh, Brad Stevens is a success or a failure. Um, You know, success to me is a function of your expectations. So, I think that Brad Stevens, ultimately, his tenure in Boston is going to be looked at as a failure. I don't think that Brad Stevens himself is a failure, and I think there were plenty of moments of success. But when we hired Brad Stevens, my expectations for this guy, especially as I got to watch him over the first couple of years, was that if he was given the right pieces, he was the type of coach that could bring in Banner 18. And at the end of the day, he didn't do it. Right? So for me, if I'm defining success as you know meeting my expectations, he did not meet my expectations and therefore he is a failure. Um, his tenure is a failure. I don't I would never call Brad Stevens a failure because as you said, so many great memories over the years, man. And that Isaiah Thomas team is probably my favorite Celtics team outside of the big three um pretty much since i've been alive i mean that was such a fun team to root for in the embodiment of the brad stevens philosophy just like a scrappy group from like a you know almost like a college team like he had a butler um that that type of blue collar attitude i think is what Resonated so well with the city of Boston with that squad, and I think that's why when we brought in Kyrie, a lot of people were a little bit worried because we were wondering if Kyrie was a little bit too Hollywood for Boston, and would he would he be blue collar enough uh, to to fit into the city?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think with with for me and Greg talked about this that we we've already had kind of a discussion on our on our other podcast with this is you know failure seems a bit harsh to me, and I understand the way that you're you're contextualizing what failure means. For me, unfulfilled is the word I keep coming back to because when you think of, you know, all of those teams that both of you guys have mentioned up until really that Kyrie point, if you look at all the rosters of all those teams, they're not conference championship teams. They're not. They're, they're probably barely playoff teams from a talent perspective, but the coaching jobs that Brad Stevens did that turned Jordan Crawford into a player of the week. Like, just think about that for a second. Early on in Brad's tenure, he turned Jordan Crawford into player of the week. Like, those are monumental steps. And, like, the way that the city gravitated to those Isaiah Thomas teams was, you know, it was so meaningful. Like Greg said, it's one of my favorite teams outside of the big three, which won championship and went to two finals. So unfulfilled for me is the word I keep coming back to because it's it's like, you know, once we got the real talent in there, you thought that that would translate to that larger success. However, you know, obviously the Kyrie era had its ups and downs. We've kind of all, it's been detailed and you know, it's been covered in great detail, everything that's happened there. And then you got to this year where it felt like, okay, we're kind of beyond the BS of the of the Kyrie era. Last year was the bubble. Everything's a little bit weirder. This year it's still, you know, a COVID weird season. And, you know, things didn't line up. Things didn't go the way that, that we were hoping that they were going to. So the last three years of Brad's tenure are really tough and just feel like he didn't get the full opportunity to fulfill what we thought was coming three years prior. And now, now he's moving on to this role. So we're never going to get to know what would have happened. Cause we've all three of us have talked about being Brad fans as far as, you know, the fire Brad crowd, get the, get the heck out of here. Like, Brad Stevens, I feel like given more time and maybe maybe he had lost the voice and maybe his voice needed to be changed. But I still felt like Brad Stevens, if he continued to be the Celtics coach, had a championship in him. But we won't know that as a coach. Now, maybe in the front office, we'll see if that's different. I mean, the biggest question for me is how much of his
1: shortcomings were due to the roster that he was given, right? Like if you look at a lot of his press conferences this year, he's gone out of his way to comment on how small that roster is in terms of size and length. And we see that a lot of the pieces this year just didn't fit. And in the years where they have fit, the injury buggers come along and struck. And realistically, his best opportunity for a championship was with the 60th pick in a second, in a draft with Isaiah Thomas leading the point. I feel like that's when that team come closest to winning anything of um to get into a finals. If you look at like the Hayward they were just, that was just bad luck. Kyrie Irving, is Kyrie Irving. And I think the bubble was another opportunity that could have at least got you to a finals. Overall, I think I agree with, um, I agree with you both in terms of as a tenure. Yeah, it's probably a failure as an individual and maximizing the talent and making sure that the players you have continue to develop and overseeing that internal development I think Brad Stevens, if you, if you're looking at a development standpoint, that career, that career in Boston as a coach has been successful.
0: Yeah. And I think also, you know, IT, when you, when you come back to IT and the curse of IT, which uh, I I wrote about, you know, when we traded him and I think that's something that's been floating around a lot out there. Like should the Celtics just sign Isaiah Thomas to a two year deal to break the curse of Isaiah Thomas Um, or you might call it the curse of Kyrie Irving, however you want to call it. But you know, the we loved rooting for that team because they were an underdog and going back to that idea that success is a function of your expectations. Our expectations were not that that team was going to make it to the finals. We were hoping that they would make it to the finals. And that's what was such a fun story to root for. And the moment we brought in Kyrie, now we have someone that's won a championship and we're pairing him with Gordon Hayward. And we have the, all this young talent. We still have Al Horford. We have Terry Rozier. We have Marcus Morris. Like we got a squad, right? So when you, when you have all that talent, it's like, okay, we expect to be in the championship and you're setting yourself up for failure. The pressure is is something that I think every Celtics fan would love to take on is the pressure of meeting the expectation to make it to the finals. But the reality is at the end of the day, there are two teams in the finals at the end of each year. And it's very difficult to get there, especially when you're in a Eastern conference with a still in his prime LeBron James for, you know, the first part of that. Um, and it, it's just really tough to do. I, I would disagree and say that the bubble was probably his best chance. I think last year yep. um, we needed to make it to the finals. It was it was sitting there for us for whatever reason, the Miami Heat are a bad matchup for us. And we just, could, we just couldn't get over the hump. But last year I thought was the year to make it. And it just sucks that Gordon Hayward got hurt, man, because Gordon Hayward was playing great basketball right before he got hurt in the bubble. And I thought he was actually our best player last year until until he got hurt. Yeah, you brought up a great point, Greg, and I wanted, I was going to try and bring this up here, because Adam talked about which
2: team he thought was the, maybe not the best brass team, but the team with the best chance, and so looking through all these teams, because a lot of these teams were really fun, you know, I think, for me, I would argue my favorite team was that Isaiah Thomas team that, you know, that made it to the conference finals um, that year, like, that whole series versus Washington is one of my favorite two-week stretches of basketball I've ever experienced. That was just, you know, I mean, that whole season following, I said that was one of my favorite experiences watching basketball. But I agree with you, Greg, that the best team with the chance to make it to the finals, I think, was that was that bubble team that felt like that was the opening of a window. And I think that's what then what transferred over to this year with those expectations, as you talked about, because it was like, oh, now the windows open. The Jays are ready to take this ascent. And then obviously, before we get to the offseason, we kind of assumed. Gordon Hayward was coming back. And then once he didn't, I don't think we realized how much that domino would affect everything, regardless of all the other COVID issues, injuries, all that. I don't think we really realized at the time how much of a domino that was going to be. But I do think it's interesting to think about which of these, like if you were to have a Brad Stevens Celtic team tournament, who do you you guys think wins? It's an eight-team tournament. Who who do you guys think wins? It's kind kind of an interesting question to think about. Man, the problem is each year, The star players on that team
1: improve, right? From a like, does last year's Celtics team beat this year's Celtics team in a one game win or go home? Does last year's day, does this year's Jason Tatum just put the team on his back like we've seen him do in multiple times and just be like, yo, young JT ain't got nothing on me, you know what I mean? (laughs) All I can imagine in my head, and I don't know why is that scene from um, above the rim where Shep is just dribbling on his own, you know, and he, he, but really he's playing against his old boy. You know, what, do you, yeah. you know the scene I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, and that's to me, like, that's how that game would end up going. It would just be JT on JT, but one of them's like the ghost of basketball past. And we're going to go with a um, a Christmas analogy there, apparently. And then <laughs> the other one is, you know, Shep just dribbling up against the wall and, playing against himself but it would be really fun i think what we should do is get like a 2k we need to see if 2k let us do some like cross game play so you play with last year's roster and i play with this year's roster and we just you know we'll Well, start like an eight-man bracket and we'll go roster versus
2: roster on 2k live hey well if we're doing 2k video game give me the Kyrie, gordon hayward the jays horford marcus morris terry rozier if we're playing video game style i'm taking that team
0: listen, I mean, it, with with the rosters, th- this year's Jason Tatum, I mean, at his peak, you know, in that one game, this dude is absolutely amazing. I don't know where you guys are with like how you feel about Jason Tatum moving forward. but I caught the uh, you know, the Brooklyn Milwaukee game last night and to see how much Brooklyn like suffocated what Milwaukee was trying to do. Chris Middleton had an off shooting night, but they were like really in his jersey. Kyrie was ding him up. He like blocked his shot a couple times um JT you know in retrospect looking back at that series I mean dude how many players in the league are better than than Jason Tatum right now he's unbelievable dude th- th- thinking about what he just did in that in that series against the against the Nets and then you watch what what the Nets just did to the Bucks. I'm like Jason Tatum might be next next year fully realized a top five player in the league
2: yeah I mean I think he's probably I mean it's hard to put him much lower than just outside that top ten. Maybe you already have them inside the top ten. But I think it's I think it's really hard to get past and I haven't you know I'd have to sit down here and make a full list, but I think it's probably pretty hard to get past 12 players in the league Mm -hmm. that maybe you would take over Jason Tatum and then probably you know from 8 to 12 I'm sure there's debates and arguments to be had of, of, of where he is in that and you know I don't know if you guys caught the the KD interview that was that was going around the internet the other day of him talking about playing against Jason Tatum and how you know he remembers in his career going up against the Kobe's the Duncan's the KG's and how he's putting he's already putting Tatum in that category so you know it's not just you know he's getting the respect of the others around the league the other top tier echelon so that's an interesting question that i would love to kind of flesh out a little bit i think it's something in the offseason we should probably do but you know somewhere in that 8 to 12 range i think it's pretty reasonable of, of where jason tatum's living these days
1: yeah i mean the more he develops that playmaking ability of his the more teams are going to have such a difficult decision to make. Like, do we close the passing lanes or do we close the shooting? And I think that Tatum will just end up being one of these guys where the only option you've got is to let him go off for 14 assists or to let him go off for 60. And that's why it's so imperative to get the right talent and the right level of shooter around him to maximise on that growth because that development's just going to keep coming. I think that'll be one thing that Brad Stevens really... Um, really kind of pushes home on a new head coach is, how you need to keep developing that Jason Tate and playmaking skill because that's going to be what opens up the game for everybody because he's just so transcendent as a scorer. If you you continue to develop him into, you know, one of the best playmaking wings in the league, because I think he has that pass recognition in him and he was already starting to flash that playmaking. Um, I think that now all of a sudden you're talking about a top three wing in the league, and then arguably um, a top five, top eight sort of guy. And MVP discussions on a regular recurrence for five or six seasons.
0: He's just he's just so damn fun to watch. And you brought it up earlier, Adam. You said that uh, one of the issues that we had with the Ross with, with the team this year was the roster, and you know what we put around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and the lack of size on the squad. Um, so I think that's a pretty good transitioning point into, you know, what what we want to do in the offseason and what type of players we want to bring in to to surround Tatum and Brown. Um, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about people out there in the free agency market. Um, is, is there anybody that y'all are targeting size wise or skill wise that really complements what Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown do? Yeah, I mean Adam just
2: kind of touched on one of the things of a or one of the play or touched on one of the assets for one of the players that I wanted to to bring up. And it's a little tough because it really depends on what happens with our books. And, and the Evan Fournier decision is probably going to be the first thing that we have to figure out. So he's first and foremost is Evan Fournier the answer to some of these things that we're looking for mm-hmm. if we get an extended season with Evan Fournier. But a guy that I'm, as I'm looking through, you know, who might be available because we're clearly not going to be able to chase anyone that's, you know, at a certain price point. So I'm trying to look at some of the guys that, that might be more available. And there's two that stuck out. I'll, I'll stuck with one of them for now because he's a guy that's come up before. And that's Doug McDermott. I think Doug McDermott is a guy that I've been hot on that I I still love you love
0: Doug McDermott. I do
2: love me some W (laughs) McBuckets. I like me some W McBuckets, man, because like I still think in that whole Hayward, whether or not and who knows, you know, how close it was to happening, but the Hayward for Turner and McDermott deal. I still think McDermott was an underrated piece in that because of his shooting ability this year with all the injuries, he dipped a little bit below 40%, but he was 41 and 43% two years for the two years prior to that. While well, shooting at a pretty good volume, about five, six threes per game. And so to Adam's point of, you know, Tatum getting more space having more ability to make plays having a guy that's going to shoot five or six threes and knock down 42 percent of that and then you have Jalen coming off ball as well that you're now trying to worry about like that type of gravity is real and I think when you add in you know he's not going to be a lockdown defender but he's a long he's long you know what I mean so when you add him to that defense if you're doing the right rotations depending on whoever the coach is like you can you're not going to get murdered with Doug McDermott on the floor for 20-25 minutes and he's got a little bit you know in the few I didn't watch as much of obviously the Pacers this year as I do the Celtics but the few games I checked in on you know He's got a little bit of, hey, if that three's not there, he can drive into the lane, either get another shot for himself or keep the ball moving. So I think a guy like Doug McDermott, I don't know what his price is going to be and, and what our flexibility cap wise will be for a guy like that. Uh, but the guy I've had my eye on for a while and I'm going to continue to monitor him and see if that's see if that's a guy that we can find a way to bring in here or, or a similar type of guy
0: i say he's, he's a pretty good uh, facsimile for what Joe Harris does for the Nets, right? I think they're very similar players. And if you put Doug McDermott on the Nets, would we talk about Doug McDermott the way that people talk about Joe Harris right now? Cause I think Joe Harris is as his, his stock around the league has really jumped up over the years. And some people calling him like one of the best shooters in the league. I, I don't necessarily know that I would call Joe Harris on that elite level of shooter. I think that he's a great shooter. I don't know that he's one of the best in the league, um, so if McDermott is put in the right situation, maybe maybe we're talking about Doug McDermott in the same way. I think we would all know, we would all say that those dudes are shooters, and you don't want to leave them open. But how good they actually are, I think, is 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 the question to to ask. But I I agree. I think Doug McDermott is someone that we could definitely go after. Um, I I kind of want to put together a little uh, a little a little trade here. Now, hear me out. Hear me out. Okay. Everybody wants to get rid of Kemba and I'm cool with that. Um, I don't know what you can get back for Kemba. Honestly, I don't know what his value is around the league. Um, So I have a, I have a little two team deal here where I want to get, I want to send out Kemba Walker, bring back Al Horford part one, Kemba Walker for Al Horford. And then part two, I want to figure out a sign in trade uh, or extend in trade, whatever, whatever it's going to be. Marcus smart for Mike Conley. I've been watching a lot of the Utah Jazz in the playoffs, man. Mike Conley is hooping. I don't know if he's, he would necessarily be in that contract range, especially because uh, he's making like $30 million this year. I don't know how much of a decrease in salary he's going to take, especially after playing this well. And I, I'm sure Utah would want to bring him back on some level at the right price. But I think Mike Conley would be the perfect type of point guard to put near uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You know, he's not a great defender, but he's not Kemba. He's a little bit bigger than Kemba is, and he's been money from three-point land. Um, so th- in terms of free agents that I'm targeting, he's a name that I want to kind of keep on the radar. Is-, is there a way that we can figure out some sort of sign-and-trade deal for Mike Conley? Because it- I don't know if you've watched him in, th- in these playoffs, but he looks really good, man. He looks quick. He looks decisive. And that three-point that three point stroke is-, is really there.
1: First of all, I think the question, I'm going to kind of pose questions back to both of you, um, because I've feel like there's discussion points that need to be had on both of your choices. <laughs> in Doug McDermott, the question is, could he hit as efficiently from free as Joe Harris does with the level of spacing that Joe Harris gets due to KD, Harden, and Kyrie being on the floor? That's the question I've got, because Joe Harris shoots in oceans of space because everybody's helping off of Joe Harris to deal with a James Harden drive or a KD post-up or a Kyrie Iverson cut. And you find Joe Harris's movement is just at that elite level where he continually loses a defender by lifting or by coming off a pin down. And then if, if Doug McDermott gets that same level of freedom and spacing, could he be as, um, as efficient? And I think the answer is probably yes. Yeah. And the second question, the second question I've got is Mike kindly sounds awesome. I think that I agree. (laughs) Um, Gives you a bit extra height. He penetrates. He likes to set guys up. He's been money from free. The only concern I've got is a sign and trade is going to hard cap you, which Mm. means how easy is it for the Celtics to then get below that tax line and stay there while filling out the rest of the roster and remaining competitive? Because you're going to take Hawthorne's contract back in this scenario. So you're still going to have like a 30 million plus on Hawthorne tatum's extension is going to kick in and then brands in the second year of that deal uh so that's a lot of money that's probably like close to 90 million 100 million it's kind of committed on those three guys it's just you'd probably need to make two or three smaller deals to open up that availability. Yeah. but it's possible i'm just saying like that would be the hardest part to make that
2: work would be the the mathematics side of things yeah, I mean, I think with the, you know, to try and get to that point of of making it work mathematically, you know, Kemba and Horford are I think somewhere about six million different difference in their in their salaries. So you could theoretically just to open up some more cap space, maybe put in a guy like Tristan Thompson into that deal. And I think if you're making that deal to bring Al Horford back, because the second year, not this upcoming year, but the year after that, he's only partially guaranteed, I think around 16 million. So his contract's a little bit easier to get off if something goes horribly awry in the next year or so. So I think with that, you probably have to add in a sweetener anyway. So maybe you can get them to take Tristan Thompson's eight or 9 million. I forget what his, what his uh, exact contract is. And I don't know if that gets us to where we need to be to bring all-star Mike Conley back in here for Marcus Smart, but uh, it's just taking one step closer to maybe that being a potential.
0: You guys okay moving on from Smart in the off season?
1: Yeah, I'm okay with it. It's not going to be nice. It's going to suck, but, um, what hurts me more, what annoys me more, is Marcus Martus. Marcus Smart's <laughs> value was at its peak at this trade deadline. That's just gone. Now you're trying. Now you're going to be dealing with Marcus Smart, the unrestricted free agent, and teams are going to be a lot less willing to give you true value, knowing that he could be a flight risk, uh, you know, at the end of the season. And I think that's what's gonna make it worse because the value you get back is not going to be what you deem fair value in a market smart trade.
2: Yeah. I think, I think market smarts value in general is something that I'm not even fully sure. I understand as far as, you know, maybe like Adam said, it was probably the best time to move off of him was this past trade deadline. But, you know, I don't know what he's going to command at the end of, of next season. So when a team looks to make that trade, if they're thinking of, you know, is Marcus Smart someone that we're going to extend immediately and try and make part of our future plans. We were on, what, a couple of weeks ago here with uh, with Greeny, Adam, and he made a great point that at Marcus Smart's last contract, we were thinking someone's coming in for $20 million, Someone's coming in for $18 million. Those offers weren't there. They weren't there. That's why he ended up back with the Celtics or partially part of the reason he ended up back with the Celtics for about 12, 13 million is that that extended market wasn't there for him. So he's four years older, had more injuries, got more mileage. You know, I I think we would all agree that Marcus Smart is a guy that can for sure influences winning and is a guy that that teams that are close to that championship level are going to have interest in to some degree. But it's really going to be hard to figure out what that value is. So back to your original question, I'm okay with moving on from Marcus Smart. I'm not going to rush to do it, but at the same time, like if you're looking to really make some serious change, the Kemba Walker piece, which I've already started to see, you know, tons and tons of fake trades popping up in my Twitter feed, which I, I don't, I was already exhausted just by how many have come up in the first week. I can't imagine, you know, we haven't even got to the technical first week of the full nba scale offseason so i can't imagine how many more of those are coming through but if you're really looking to make change Marcus smart is likely involved in a move somewhere if this Mm -hmm. roster is going to look any dramatically different than it did last year Marcus smart with some combo of tristan thompson rob williams or maybe one of the younger guys is really is, is in draft picks those are the only ways for the most part unless something dramatic outside of that happens that this roster looks different
0: I just don't know what that nets you, though. You know, like in in terms of that's what I'm saying. The value, have no idea what that value is for sure. So, like, if we're gonna prioritize in a vacuum, the people that we need to move on from, I feel like Kemba's got to be the number one guy, right? Like, if if I if it's between Kemba, Marcus, and Fournier, and we have to figure out who we're giving what's uh, Kemba at 36 million, right? 36 million to over the next two years. I would rather split that 36 million between Marcus smart and Fournier and move on and figure out a way to move on from Kemba. Cause I think smart and Fournier are going to be there for you right they're They're pretty solid. Um, you know, they don't miss many games and they have the size that you need to compete. Kemba's just too small. And, you know, I, I've, because Kemba's been on the roster and like once the trade deadline was gone, I was like, all right, this is the squad we have. So I'm gonna argue for Kemba and I'm gonna back Kemba up and support him. But I never liked Kemba Walker on the Celtics. I thought back then when we had uh space in that offseason when we when we brought him in the sign trade, I was arguing for Malcolm Brogdon. Like Malcolm Brogdon is the type of guy that I've rev- always coveted for the Celtics, just like a six foot four solid point guard that can D up pretty much anybody in the league. So Smart I think is more on in that mold. I think Brogdon's way better than Smart is. Um and then I think Fournier even though he couldn't guard anybody um in in the playoffs, I think that his size and the fact that he's still 28 years old, you you know, you will be able to trade him down the road if you need to. Um Kemba's Kemba's just a guy I think we have to move on from. Well, yeah. can I ask you a quick
2: question today. Yeah, yeah. good. So and I'm with you. I, I mean, I think Kemba, I just think it's gonna be really difficult to move off Kemba. So this is what I want to ask you is what are you willing to eat in a trade to get off Kemba? Like, how important is it to get off that trade? Because you're gonna have to lose that trade, most likely, unless there's something that, mm-hmm. you know, that comes out of left field, likely you're losing that trade, you're paying somebody to take this asset, the 70 yeah. plus million off your hands. What are you willing to to eat in that scenario?
0: Um, well, I mean, that's why I'm I'm trying to find somebody like Al Horford that is like on a similar contract um to him. But if if it's just like in a vacuum, I would I would definitely give up a first and a young player to get off Kemba. I yeah, I just think we I, yeah we need to we just need to move on from him, man. If it's like we we give up we give up this year's pick or next year's pick and um Neesmith or or Romeo, like honestly, I would probably do it because I, I just think we need to move on.
1: I think the biggest part is like um there's always going to be a team willing to eat a contract for you. It's just how much you sweeten the deal. Exactly. right. It's it's always going to be an available option. I think that one thing to keep in mind here is moving on from Kemba doesn't mean it needs to be before the opening tip of next season. You have all the way until the trade deadline for other things to start to um, deteriorate on other rosters. Maybe a guy just doesn't want to be there anymore or a team's like mm-hmm. yo this guy's no good for our locker room we need to change things here but he and then that's where that Kemba Walker deal could come in and you could actually probably get better value by being like hey this dude's causing you a bunch of problems and he's on our big contract. we'll give you Kemba that's a, a known commodity within a locker room and mm-hmm. we'll take your guy back and you know there's going to be ways I know that I've seen people throw around Kristaps Porzingis for Kemba one injury guy for another but you're getting size and length back Uh, Do I hate it? No. Do I think it's good? No. But it's an option. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's certainly an an option. (laughs) But it's an option. So there's always going to be a possibility to move on from someone like Kemba. But um, as you guys have mentioned, it's what you're willing to eat to get to where you need to be, where it's a a workable trade for everybody. Now, one name that when we were talking about free agency, one name that I really like. And uh, we'll kind of wrap it up here. We'll go. We'll just throw out our top three coaches for the opening, um, for the coaching roster spot opening after. But the one name I really like is Nerlens Noel. I think mm. he's cheap. Led the, uh, was second in the league in blocks. Um, he's only like what six nine, but he's got like that seven foot three wingspan. And I think if you're going to be prioritizing spacing, you're definitely going to need to know that you've got a physical presence on defense, who's going to be a rim rim protector. And while Nerlens Noel's not going to give you ridiculous numbers what he does do is block shots at a good clip and his positioning is really good and I think that once he came into New York you saw their defense take that next step and when Mitch Robinson went down for a while it was New Noel that stepped in and that defense didn't miss a beat so um Noel at like five six mil three on a, a one year or a one plus one I think that would be a really good option and it gives you more incentive then to A, move on from Christian Thompson, who I think hustled his heart out during that series, but is obviously just not a great fit for this roster. But it also gives you another guy that grew up local to Boston that's going to be willing to put his body on the line to succeed in a, in a stadium and a community that he
2: grew up in and he has ties to already. Yeah, I love the idea of uh of, of pretty much just rotating continuously on defense. Nerlens Noel and Rob Williams, from the defensive perspective, are kind of assemblies of each other. So seeing the two of them rotating back and forth would be something that's that's really interesting. And actually, I looked this up earlier this week, thinking about you know I don't, I don't want to take us too far off topic here, but of the Rob Williams. Um, contract situation where he's now extension eligible coming up this offseason and it had me think back to Nerlens Noel a couple of years ago with the Mavericks was was also extension eligible and he turned down i think it was 4 years 80 million to try and test the market, ended up with like one year, five. They've been living off, you know, pretty much $5 million contracts the last three years, as opposed to that four year, $80 million deal he could have had with the Mavericks. They let him go ahead and test it. And he's kind of been floating around since. And, you know, he had the injury concerns, much like Rob Williams. So I think it's really interesting that you bring him up. And if we could bring him in for the right price and move on from Tristan Thompson, I really I really like the idea of our defense constantly having an anchor of Nerland's Noel and Rob Williams back there, if they're both healthy. I yeah. mean, hindsight's horrible, right? You turn down four for eighty and get three for fifteen.
0: How do yeah. you
1: like? You know, like <laughs> you, that's that's some self belief right there, right? If someone tells me I'll give you four years and eighty million dollars over four years, I don't care if you want me to bounce on a pogo stick for the next twenty hours straight. <laughs> like you could tell me whatever you want. You want me to keep running till my
2: legs fall off? Fine, I'll do that for you. Eighty million dollars, whatever you want, whatever <laughs> you want. Well, that's the case study you got to present to Rob Williams, like, hey, here's New Orleans Noel. Like, I'm not saying we're giving Rob four years, 80 million with his injury concerns, but whatever it is that you want to maybe try and get him on a team friendly deal for, I don't know, three for 40 or something, whatever the number might be, it's, hey, listen, like this is this is the example of of what happens if maybe, you know, you don't sign up with that team friendly deal, you could end up, you know, playing for minimum contracts or, you know, mid-level contracts the rest of your career bouncing around. We're offering you a little bit of stability. So we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think it's the the old Steph Curry thing, right? When Steph had had the glass ankles, right? I think his first extension that he signed was something like four years at some maybe like ten million a year. It's like really ridiculous. It was was insanely low, which allowed them to build the team that they built because his contract was solo. Um, So you know that that's definitely something I'm looking at for Rob is what can we get him extended at? If we can get him at ten million over the next four years or something like that, that would be huge, man. That'd be a steal.
1: So we'll wrap it up with our top three um, because I know everybody's going to be finishing their commute to work at this point. Um, So we'll wrap it up with our top three coaching picks. Now, I will say if you follow me on Instagram, then you would have seen my top three picks yesterday. If you don't follow me on Instagram, please do follow me on Instagram. That would be very much appreciated. Um, So my top three picks are at number three, I've got Becky Hammond. Number two, I've got Sam Cassell. And at number
0: one, my number one option, my numerate una is Kara Lawson. I love it. My, my list is exactly the same, except I got Chauncey Billups at two instead of Sam Cassell.
2: <laughs> well, this is a little, little uninteresting because I feel like we have like the same three <laughs> candidates. Mine might be in i I've, I've lost track of which order you guys had it all in, but I had Lawson at three. I had Cassell at two and Billups at one. Um, you know, I think for, with Kara Lawson, just her immediate tie to the organization from last year for mm-hmm. me is one of the things that really sticks out and all, you know, we ha- we just have a little bit of a closer relationship as a fan base with her and all of the inside stories that we've heard of her work with the players. So, and, you know, she's already come out as, you know, for, through some of the, the rumors of being, you know, one of the top external candidates that they're going to look at. So I think it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens with this coaching vacancy.
0: Yeah. Cause you I think what's... with, uh, I'm sorry, Adam. Uh, no, I think ahead, ahead. I think with, uh, you know, what was said in the press conference when they talked about the continuity and the importance of continuity is why they were promoting internally, bringing Stevens into the basketball ops job, is that they wanted to keep things consistent on some level. And I think Kara Lawson, because of sh- her ties to the organization just last year, I think it was, um, I think that's why for me, she would be the best candidate. I personally don't know too much about the way that she coaches. It's all, you know, secondhand sources. Um, but all the stories say that that she is the right person for the job, and that's what Scal said, right? Scal came out and was like, "Hey, this isn't about like you know a progressive hire or anything like that. She's the most qualified person for the job." And I mean, they, Scal's been around the team more more than any of us, so I'm I'm definitely likely to take his word, even though he is annoying as hell.
1: <laughs> I think for me, the biggest thing, biggest question mark I've got over this whole process is how did Chauncey Billups become such a front runner when he's got so limited coaching experience compared to somebody like Sam Cassell that's been around three different NBA teams has worked with multiple different stars as an assistant has done like basically paid his dues and he's very much by all accounts ready for that next step into a head coaching position. I feel that Chauncey Billups he's because he's got that reputation of like a TV analyst, he's done radio shows, he's just got a, a larger presence within people's basketball like um echo chambers so mm-hmm. to speak i think that's put his name ahead of someone like Cassell who i think is probably more experienced to come in and handle whether this what i'm effectively classing as this soft rebuild that the celtics are going to go underway with
0: well I, I think with with chauncey it's like the the reputation that he has and had as a player in the way that he might be able to you know affect the the team as a whole with just like his presence right i don't know if that's what necessarily you are looking for if you're brad stevens and the head coach but seemingly if we're prioritizing you know the the type of head coach that we want to come in is is a is a head coach that has playing experience right and that that did it as a you know he i mean he was a championship championship was he mvp
2: Uh, NBA Finals MVP. Yeah, NBA
0: Finals MVP. You know, point guard of of one of the greatest defensive teams of all time. I think that his that like cachet that he brings is just like another level over Sam Cassell. So Sam Cassell has the coaching experience, but he doesn't necessarily have the you know the cachet that Chauncey Billups had as a player, even though Sam Cassell had a hell of a career too.
2: I think it's pretty interesting. And I was thinking about this the other day when you look at the resumes of all three, all of our top three candidates. None of them have been a head coach in the NBA. So I know to varying degrees, they've all been assistant coaches. And it feels like, and I know, Adam, you've said this on, on Twitter, and I, and I kind of feel the same way, but I'm questioning why I feel this way, that when candidates like Lloyd Pierce or Jason Kidd come up, I'm very off that. I'm, I'm, I'm not really wanting the Celtics to go that way. And it's because we know more. We know what we've seen. We haven't seen any of the candidates that we've mentioned right now as a head coach. And so we look to the pedigree. We look to what we hear behind the scenes, the relationships with players. And, you know, it makes me think of these two things here. One, you think of a guy like Luke Walton. He had the pedigree, played for championship teams, played around really great players, was an assistant coach on the Warriors, you know, even was given that little sample size of what the first 30 games, I forget what year it was when Steve Kerr was out with his back injury and they went like 30 and two or just something like we're out like gangbusters. And, you know, then he goes to L.A., that didn't work out very well. Kings, still not going very well. And, you know, you think of some of these coaches that we write off at just because we know a little bit more, who's to say that maybe they haven't, just playing devil's advocate, they haven't learned from that experience and come back as a different coach. You know, we're covering the Celtics here. The England Patriots are in our backyard. Bill Belichick had a you know, relatively unsuccessful first stint as an actual head coach, many years as a defensive coordinator, had a very unsuccessful stint as a head coach in, in Cleveland for, I think it was, four or five years, made one playoffs, was fired from that job. A couple of years later, gets the Patriots job. 20 years later, he's the greatest coach in the history of the sport. So, I mean, I just think it's really interesting to think of the ambiguity of the, the candidates that are being pushed to the forefront that don't really have any type of head coaching experience. And, you know, just comparing that versus some people that we know a little bit more about and feel like they're getting a lot more pushback as far as who we'd like to see be the next coach.
1: Yeah, I do think a lot of it comes down to like um, opportunity and situation, right? Like, if you look at somebody like, let's use Tibbs as an example. Tibbs' last stuff before New York was a very unsuccessful selling min- spell in Minnesota. And that situation just wasn't right. Evidently, the player personnel wasn't right, or he wasn't getting the buy in from the players that you need to be successful in his type of system. Goes to New York, basically, coach of the year. You know what I mean? I don't. So. That situation plays a huge part in whether or not you're going to be successful as a coach. You need the players to buy in. You need the front office to buy into what you're doing and to be willing to give you a roster capable of performing the way you want them to perform. If you hire a defensive coach, but all he's got is offensive pieces, like Tibbs did in Minnesota, where he's got Carl anthony Towns, one of the worst defensive bigs in the league. He's got D'Angelo Russell. You, You give him... Jimmy Butler but Jimmy Butler's like I don't want to be here it's too cold send me to Miami because like Miami is like you know Will Smith made a whole song about welcome to Miami we, <laughs> yeah. we know Miami's a little better there. than Minnesota <laughs> you know what i'm saying so like for me a lot of it comes down to opportunity as well as like what you're being provided as a coach Luke Walton in my opinion is one of the worst coaches in the league but is that just because he's not getting the support he needs in terms of the roster that fits his style of coaching and style of play so there's a lot of more questions for me that go into this rather than just I don't want player, I don't want Lloyd Pierce, I don't want mm-hmm. Jason Kidd. The thing that puts me off of Lloyd Pierce is you were in a very similar situation in Atlanta. You had a young team with a very clearly defined star, you had a rim running big, just like in Clint Capella, you had floor spacers, you had young pieces in DeAndre Hunter. Um, Huerta's a young guy, and you couldn't make it work there so what makes us think that you could make it work in Boston with a very similar roster construction? That's why I'm so far out on
0: Lloyd Pierce. Yeah. But Lloyd Pierce, those, you know, they, they moved on from him right before they got healthy. So you don't know how much of it was Nate McMillan and how much of it is just a healthy roster. Um, but he, he's, he's a guy that I think his reputation was that he was like, you know, that leader of men type, um, you know, players coach. And, for whatever reason that didn't work out in, in Atlanta, um, similar. And it, to correct me if I'm wrong, but th- that's kind of what I heard about him was that he was kind of similar to the the Mark Jackson vibe, like in that mold of a coach. Um, but I, I, I don't personally want anybody that's done it before as, as Will was saying, like, I don't want the Lloyd Pierce's. I don't want the Jason kids. I want someone that, is going to be kind of fresh and new because i think that's what the team needs it's just like someone that's going to come in with a completely different philosophy on how this team can be successful and get you know let's let's give someone a chance man let's give Carol lawson a chance if everyone thinks that her basketball iq is at the level that uh you know all the other candidates are and possibly even surpassing that give her a chance Give her a chance. Yeah. I'm,
2: I'm not opposed to it. I was just kind of pointing out, like, just, just thinking about it as a whole of, of what we know and what might change. And, you know, something to keep, in, keep on the radar is when this news all dropped, I think it was maybe the day after you know Woj came out and said keep an eye on coaches that are still in the playoffs right now that mm. this is going to be a coveted job we already saw Terry Stotts get let go in Portland after their collapse against the against the Nuggets so I'm not saying Terry Stotts is a guy that I'm advocating for but I'm just saying that's that's something else to factor in here and see now you know as other head coaching opportunities start to open up how quickly do the Celtics need to make a move on these candidates? Jerome Allen, who's an assistant coach in the Celtics, is now he's already interviewed for the Celtics job internally. Is going to externally interview for the Blazers job. So some of these candidates may may start to have a little bit of movement. So it's going to be interesting to see how quickly Brad Stevens needs to make this first move in his new role. I'll throw out um, I'll
1: throw out a curveball name, and then I'll let then we'll wrap it up, and we'll you know let everyone know where we where we live in terms of social media. <laughs> um, Mike Jewsbury. I think that Mike Dewsbury could be an, a, a good name. Too. You know, he knows the system, knows most of the players. It's a very similar reasonings with Kara Lawson. I just think Kara Lawson's playing career makes her more respectable in the locker room than what Mike Dewsbury would. But it's just a name that, you know, if Brad Stevens wants somebody that's going to give continuity but is going to bring fresh ideas, then Mike Dewsbury could be somebody that he at least gives an interview to.
2: Yeah, and is it, is it, correct me if I'm wrong, is he, on, is he on tip staff right now with the Knicks? No, he's, um, he, I think he's at Purdue. I'm not sure. I, I, I know he was with the self organization. I don't know. I know he's no longer there, but I wasn't sure where he was. That's why I wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I think he's at
1: Purdue now. I know that, but there again, you know, who knows? There's so many coaching options. We're going to be speaking about this for a, about a week. And we'll go deeper into why we want people. And there's going to be a lot of free agents to talk. And then there's going to be a lot of draft talk. But until then, we're going to let you go. So what we would like you to do very nicely, go onto your Apple um, podcasting app that you were listening to us on, if you were listening to us on Apple. Scroll down and you will see a review section. And what I would very much appreciate is if you hit the five stars and then wrote a nice little blurb about why you think we deserve five stars. It makes me feel really happy when I see those. Um, Just because I know that that, you've enjoyed it that much, you've took the extra 10 seconds to do that. If you're not listening on Apple device, then the best thing you can do if you did enjoy this show is either interact with us on Twitter or Instagram. You know, um, our our socials will be hyperlinked in this description to the podcast. Or go and tell your friends and family, hey, this awesome podcast about the Boston Celtics, I think you guys would really enjoy. With that said, we're going to now leave you to listen to about a 15-second clip of a song that is, in my opinion, rather good. And the guy (laughs) who's... um, vocalizing on this song has actually been speaking to you for the last 45 55 minutes mr Greg Menakis. do you want to lead us out and let everyone know what this song is and where they can find it in its entirety
0: yeah so this is um, a song for my band down here in austin texas we're called black sheep optimists three words you can find us at black sheep at black sheep optimists on instagram and um this one is called Delo so you could find it anywhere there you find your uh, streaming services I ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your repenting. Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless Every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time Keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the major. Still, he chased greatness, expected that he might fail And I might too, I might never get to pop champagne Celebrating with the crew, this ain't everything I am it's
1: something that I do.